I think we need to get a longer view. We need to understand and ask ourselves that question. What do I value? I'm gonna do a little better. I can be a little bit better. Welcome to the For the Love Podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we're talking about how to catch green lights with actor and minister of culture, Matthew McConaughey. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Welcome to today's show. Okay, so right now we're in a brand new series, and it's called For the Love of Small Wins. Because look, I mean, it has been a year, right? I don't have to tell you this, and you certainly don't have to tell me. And so we're like, as a podcast team thinking, how can we bring a little bit of good news to our community, right? How can we celebrate small wins? And how can we highlight those and kind of find collective gratitude in our community? So (laughs) our guest today needs zero introduction. You've known him. You've loved his work for literally decades. But I'm going to just tell you just a little touchdown about him anyway, just because I want to. Because today we have on Academy Award winning actor, Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> oh, man. So Matthew, married, father of three kids, loyal son and brother and Texan. He considered himself a storyteller by occupation. He believes it's okay to have a beer on the way to temple. Amen and amen. He feels better with a day's sweat on him. And he's a, and this means a lot to me, maybe of everything that I just said in that list. He's a self-proclaimed pickle expert and an aspiring orchestral conductor. (laughs) And guys, Matthew has just released a brand new book, his very first one, and it's called Green Lights. It's a memoir. We're going to talk about it quite a bit, filled with stories and wisdom delivered Well, I mean, like in the way that only Matthew McConaughey can and does, okay? This is absolutely classic. I loved this conversation. It kind of went like this because we got to going on a few things and I wanted to talk longer and I'm not going to forget this one. You're not either. And so I am so pleased to share with you my like sparkling conversation with the ever wonderful and beloved Matthew McConaughey. Hey. Ba-dum. There he is. Ta-da. Electricery. We have figured it out once again. The internet works sometimes. Love it. Love it. Oh, hi. Hi. Nice to meet you. You. From where are you hailing? Austin. Look at all this Austin love going I know. on. Too. Texas energy to the internet. Wave out the back door. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. You're getting to experience a second summer this week. So what's not to love here? <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm so happy to meet you. I had uh, Camilla on the podcast just a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah? She's pretty great. Yeah. 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 yeah you did all right. Yeah. So okay, let's get into it. My community loves you. This is exciting. I love you. We all love you. Yay, Matthew, you're loved. <laughs> um, I've been on the other side. 
as have I. So, okay. We have, you know, first of all, welcome to the For the Love podcast. We're delighted to have you. Been watching, obviously, you appreciating your work for a really long time. And you're, you've got a, you got a lot of buckets. It's interesting to watch you. It's interesting to kind of watch what you do. You've, you know, whether it's like on-screen storytelling or, you know, well, you're just down here at UT right now, not just minister of culture, which did you invent that term? I like it. It's actually, I assumed it, but it's actually a term that other countries have, like in Africa, they're ministers yeah. of culture and they oversee tourism, music, youth, and sports. They don't have them in America. So I think I love it. I love it. And you're teaching a class now. I've got a daughter there. I've got a junior at UT. And I wanted her to take your class, even though she's not a film student, but apparently that's just not how it works. How's that been going, by the way? I do you enjoy that? Yeah, I enjoy it more than I knew. I mean, I let me tell you how I got into it. So, you know, I've been doing this for 28 years. Yeah. I realized that. Boy, that the final movie was very different than that original script uh-huh. on all of on everything. Some to greater extents than others in certain films I've done. Well, I would go and talk to some of these film students before I became a professor over there and started the class. And I still, in my mind, would felt like I was one of the students. I still would kind of talk to them like I didn't feel more like the teacher. I felt more like a student. I, you know, the old proverbial, "Oh, I was just here a few years ago." Like, no, you were here twenty eight years ago. Sure, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And so then they would, I'd be telling them about experiences, and then a lot of them came forward and going, "Wow, that's great. That really helps." And I'm like, "You didn't know that?" And they're like, "No." And I realized, oh, you've got twenty eight years of experience yeah. that yeah. you could share. That now you may take, you may, you just notice second hat, Matthew, because you've been through it. These young students don't have that. And you know what? This class of how a script turns into a movie or how it goes script to screen, that journey, every piece of art takes that's going to be, you know, on, on a TV screen or in a theater, that journey, I wish I would have had that class. Sure. Not film school at UT. So, you know, worked with the dean over there and then Scott Rice, a professor, and we worked up the curriculum and worked it into some structure. And then I went to my first, the first one was Free State of Jones with the Gary Ross. And said, look, will you give, will you, will you be the first film that does this? We're going to get the book from where the script started. The students will read the book. Then we're going to show them the first script. Then we're going to show them the second script, the third. We're going to then show them the shooting script. Then we're going to show them the first assembly of the film. Hmm. Then we're going to show them the final film. And all of these things are different along the way. It evolves. You see, oh, where's that scene? My favorite action scene at the end of the movie. Where is it? Well, we had to cut that. It was going to cost $2 million. We didn't have the budget. We had to rewrite our way out of that. Well, wait a minute. So-and-so is my favorite character. Where'd she go? Oh, she got edited out and is a smaller character. Wait a minute. But that that guy was a small character. He had a few lines. Wait, he's like a main character in the movie now. Yep, this is when it happened. So it's putting some signs behind the magic of how written word and the original idea becomes the final piece of art that we share with the on screens. How do you find the students these days? What do you think of them? You know, this is a different generation. They're coming up through film school, just completely different time than you did. Just there's a lot of different resources available to them now. And they've even just had access to sort of behind the scenes filmmaking in a different way and a lot of variety of platforms. Well, what do you think of them? Is our future bright? Well, we'll see. We'll see. There's there's a couple of things. I mean, one, that's one of the things I'm always reminded them is going, gang, it's easier to tell a story now. It's in your hand. Okay. And look in your bedroom when you wake up in the morning. There's a story there. Look in your house. Look across the street. 
Look at your little brother, your little sister, your mom and dad. There's a story there. They're all around us. Look for them. You don't have to go away. You don't have to physically go to Hollywood or New York to do these things. You don't even need all the real estate for the, the equipment anymore. Like I'm saying, you can do it on your doggone phone. It's about telling stories. Start telling stories and start failing at telling the stories right now. Mm. Take the risk to tell it. Do it. Do a bad job. But just keep trying it. Don't worry about it. Just do a bad. Just try it. Tell it now. The one thing I'm wanting to, you know, try to really get across to them that you can't really explain, you can't teach, is I can go in there and share all these things and put some science behind the magic of filmmaking, but you got to have the juice. Yeah. You got to either, I, the world doesn't care about you. If you're wanting to make art, if you're wanting, the world doesn't give a damn about your GPA. Yeah. The world doesn't care about when you go talk about to somebody who may finance your film, it's not about how smart you sound talking. That's the literary word. They want to show me, show them. So start communicating through moving pictures and through, through grabbing images and showing someone what you mean. Use that as a means of communication. That's what matters if you're wanting to be a filmmaker. Well, I'm excited to see what this generation produces. I find them pretty exciting. I like them. I've got a couple of kids in this young adult generation and they're interesting. They're paying attention. They're engaged. I find them really teachable. You know, a lot of ink has been spilled on what a nuisance they are to culture, what a drain that they are on the adult community, but that's not my experience of them at all. I, You're very I, excited about where we're heading. I think so. I, I feel really, I look at them in, with a lot of awe and respect to think of how far ahead they are at their age than I was at their age. Right. What I was paying attention to, what I cared about, what I thought was possible. I just see a, a huge amount of possibility in the next generation. And so yeah. I'm excited. I'm ready to watch I'm them soar. I'm ready I, to watch I, them I, I, sure, I sure hope so. You know, they have so much more information to disseminate and be discerning about than we did. Right. And how do you navigate through the woods of all of this yeah. massive amount of information and hopefully you know, and I know they need some help sometimes. Hell, I know I do. Of yeah. going, what, which Pete, what can I rely on? And mm -hmm. it, that, that can curate my vision of the world and how mm -hmm. I feel about things, who I am, who I'm not, because there's so much information. It's hard to navigate through that. It um, is. For their generation, it's both kind of a responsibility and possibility, but also a burden. What they just have to just sift through every single day is it's taxing for the best of us. So, yeah, I know they're, they've got a lot to manage, but it's going to be interesting to watch them go. I like that you're leading them. I love that you have this real deep connection with that age group, with, with the university, with the students. And of course, they love you. My big thing, I know what helped me the most, and I, and I still think it's very useful, hopefully for them, is experiential learning. Yeah. I'm like, it's like the work I'm trying to do in Austin. How does Austin become the extended backyard of the university? How does the university become yeah. the extended backyard of Austin? I'm like... You know, if you're a journalism major and there's a protest going on down at the tower, mm. get the hell out of the classroom. Go down there and cover it. Yeah. Find an internship as, a, as an advertiser or a filmmaker. Find an internship now in, in, in Austin. Start working on it. You know, start creating so you can make the transition out because you don't have to go somewhere else. It's all right here at our feet. Right. That's right. And of course, you know, I think that because... I'm a 20-year Austin citizen, so I think I happen to think we're in the best city in the world, but mm -hmm. you know how Texans are. We love us some us. Texas loves Thank some goodness. us, right? Thank goodness. Yeah. 
I know. I'm excited to talk to you about your new project too. If you would just kind of start by talking a little bit about what you mean by like catching green lights. What yeah. does this mean to you? Where did this vernacular work itself into to sort of your life? And then let's move forward on, on what you turned it into. Right. So green lights, they say, go, proceed. They affirm our way. They give us an attaboy. They give us approval. Carry on. Red and yellow lights stop and slow us down. We, we, we don't like those because they interrupt our flow. They can intervene our procession. They can come in forms of hardships and even death. But I believe that all the yellows and reds do turn green or reveal a green light within themselves. Sometimes in the moment, you're in a moment, you're like, this is hard, but man, I know I'm here for a reason. There's a lesson I'm supposed to learn right here. Or you're on a roll, but then someone interrupts you and you have to go have an introspective, thoughtful moment. Call it a yellow light. Well, it was good. You needed that thoughtful moment because maybe you're just rushing forward without the right context of the situation. The, that was a green light. Maybe they maybe you didn't want the yellow and the red, but often we find out we needed the right. yellow and the red in our life. Mm-hmm. Green lights, we can engineer them by the choices we make every day. We can engineer them in our future. We can live in a way today that we set up, tee up more green lights for us in the future called delayed gratification, being kind to our future selves, acting in ways where we can be more present and be more of ourselves in the future. You get them by a mix of responsibility and freedom, the responsibility of freedom and the freedom that comes with responsibility. And, you know, we either notice we're in the, we're catching green lights or in a green light moment at the time, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe next month, maybe we will notice that red and yellow lights were green lights on our deathbed. Maybe we won't notice some of the red and yellow lights were green lights in our life. Maybe it'll be our great, great, great grandkids that reap that benefit and see that thing turn green for whatever lesson is learned. So that's what the book is really about. I found that theme through all the stories, the people, places, prescribes, poems, prayers, and bumper stickers that I found in my 36 years of diaries. I found this theme of places where I was in really tough times in my life that made it very clear to me. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you right now with the life I have if I didn't have those things. Sure. All the way down to my dad dying, I would only be sitting here talking to you and have the life that I have if he hadn't moved on. I were green lights, assets out of his moving on that helped me stand up, be more courageous to be a good man mm. that I don't think I would have taken control of if he'd still been alive. I would have kept relying on him being there to have my back. Sure. You know what I mean? So it's how to deal with some hardships, how to find your frequency again when we're off frequency, like we're all kind of off frequency right now in these COVID times. I mean, it's how to, I've looked back in my diaries and I've always written down things at about times when I was feeling successful or my relationships in life were good. My relationship with myself was good. My relationship with my career was good. And I've written at those times too. And I've been able to go back when I'm in a rut, which we always get in a rut sometime or another and look at what was I doing when things were going well, when I was catching green lights. Oh, I had different habits. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not getting enough sleep. Who am I hanging out with? Where am I going? Oh, I'm gonna recalibrate again. And they've helped me get find, to find my frequency again. And I think they can help us all. So you mentioned a couple of times, you have, you've kept a diary for 36 years of your life. That's a really big deal, like super rare to keep that discipline up for that long. I read in Vanity Fair that Camilla was the one maybe who kicked you into gear on writing this book. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit about how it, 
how it came together, why you decided to go into the desert without electricity, like a crazy person and put this thing together. And what was it like? I mean, cause you write a lot, you're a writer, you're a creator, but this is a different genre. Like, how did you find it? Well, one, I was scared to go do it. I'm not much for looking back. Mm-mm. I wasn't very excited about what I might see. I said, oh, you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be ashamed. You're going to see times where you were an arrogant prick. Wow. And you know what I mean? Hey, why do I need to do that? I don't need to go look at that. Someone else, Camilla or someone else, after I die, I'll open those treasure chests of sure. diaries and see if something's worthy of sharing. So I've been threatening to go open that treasure chest of diaries and see what the heck was in them for a while. All of a sudden, I had a couple of weeks that kind of opened up for me. And... As I was thinking, I need to go take those out. Camilla finished my sentence. She was like, take them, load up the truck, get the hell out of here and don't come back until you got something. So I took them. So then just like everything, most things like working out, what's the hardest part? Putting on your shoes. Once I got out the door and went and sat down with everything and they started to reveal, I look for central themes and they are, they were stories, people, places, prescribes, poems, prayers, and bumper stickers. Those were my stacks that were in front of me, my categories. Then as I went through those, I started to find this theme of green lights that I was talking about earlier. The things that I thought I'd be embarrassed about, I was still embarrassed about some of them, but mostly I laughed at myself. The things that I really thought I'd be ashamed about, I found that I either already had forgave myself about that and changed, or I now forgave myself for it. The things that I saw where I was an arrogant prick, which I was, I went, well, at least you were arrogant. At least you had the courage to be an arrogant prick because look, you, you, you know, and, and I followed stories every time in my life when I'd be really arrogant and think I was a know-it-all about something. Pretty quickly after that, I step in shit. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I like fumble, you know, I'm like, ah, so I was able to laugh and go, well, at least you had the courage to think, yeah. you know, to have such an ego to go, oh, I know. And then you learned your lesson here right soon after. That became the process. The first two weeks were in the desert, no electricity. After that, it was in different cabins and different places, but they did have electricity where I take the printer and my laptop. And it was a total of 52 days writing and then about a year and a half of editing. Wow. You wrote it in 52 days? It was about averaged 17 hour writing days. Sometimes I get hot and it'd be 23 hours later and I couldn't Uh couldn't stop writing. I remember that. Here was my original thing I wrote down on day four. I wrote down, okay, May the words on the page need to be worthy of being shared if they were signed by anonymous, mm-hmm. but at the same time need to be words that only Matt McConaughey could have written. That's good. So that was my sort of North Star because I'm coming in, I'm a celebrity. I've got a certain assets and equity of that. I'm going to sell some books. Sure. You know what I mean? But I'm not interested. I'm not writing this as a celebrity. I'm writing this as maybe I maybe more so of who I am and always have been that precedes and is above me ever being a celebrity you know, and, and is more important than any of the celebrities. So that's what I try to do. And I laughed, I cried, it got bloody. I had my chin strap and my mouthpiece on at, at certain times and it was not always comfortable, but I came through it on the other side and I'm honored to be sharing it uh, in book form. It's great. I have it and it's great. It really, really is. And I, I couldn't help but think that probably all your experience and all your years in filmmaking really primed you for that kind of brutal editing process in in publishing and book writing because you do have to cut a lot of darlings when it's this personal when you're not playing a character but you're writing a memoir essentially that can be super super painful to keep in some stuff you'd rather cut and cut some things you'd like to keep and you know i did notice is i've performed i've told these stories 
over dinners and campfires, et cetera. So my thought was, oh, just go record the best version of the story mm. and transcribe that to the page. Yeah. And that'll be great. Uh, uh. Oh, it didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. 30% too long. Right. And I had to really go back in and wow. go, uh, yeah, what's working in the told story with my raised eyebrow right now and my lilt and my intonation and my nonverbal, yeah. you don't have all that on the page. Mm-hmm. So you have to find the word. You have to find the sentence that sets up the moment. You got to know where to use the comma, the ellipsis and the period and start a new paragraph. When to add, you know, my first riffs, my first versions were way too many italicized words, way too many. Ah, Do you know what I mean? I love italicized words with all my heart. You can look down and and the whole thing's it's it's quoted in italicized. Can I quote and italicized at the same time? You know what I mean? (laughs) But I found to get past and go, no, trust that. That doesn't need an italicized. You don't need to contextualize that word. That's good. You know, just go with, trust the storytelling. There was My editor a, has to tell me that all the time because I have a, over, I love to use an overabundance of literary tools. I'll just italicize it so you understand how important this word is. And she's like, you got to learn how to trust your reader. Oh, how about, how about bold print, italicized and in quotes. And underlined. <laughs> so that is the way I like to roll on right? a page. And apparently yeah. that's obnoxious. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, that sort of restraint that you have to apply to the words in print that you don't have to apply to verbal storytelling. It's a real toggle. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, I have two very different categories, just the same, same as you, and realize that sometimes they're just very, very different ways of communicating. But I love to flex both muscles. And so it's exciting that you have flexed this new muscle. Do you see yourself writing anymore? Like, what? You, it's too soon. It's like asking a lady who's just had a baby if she wants another one. But yeah, I mean, do I, you think I, you might I, want to do this again? Yes. Hmm. That I had an incredible time. I, I, I right. so enjoyed that solitude so enjoyed that Socratic dialogue I got to have with myself so happy I've got a, a, a wife that said yes go get mm-hmm. don't go back to you got something yeah get out of here so yeah. I didn't that didn't have me looking over my shoulder wondering if things are taken care of back home or I didn't make me come home from a you know two weeks ten of writing feeling like oh I've got a lot of makeup time now I gotta I gotta Probably. handle a whole bunch of other stuff to catch back up because I did she never made me feel that way so it was always like Free, go, and how was it? Come back, share it, got your back. So to have that support makes it much easier too and more enjoyable. She's special. When things start to get a little busy and new tasks and priorities start to creep into your time, how do you respond to that? I know for me, it's easy to dive headfirst into tackling all the new stuff and kind of forget to take care of myself, which is not good for anybody in my life. So I found an easy tool that helps me stay on track, even when things get crazy, which is always, and that's Noom, N-O-O-M. You know that I love Noom because it's not a diet. It's just a easy to stick to way of life, that's all. And Noom doesn't tell you what to do and what not to do. It teaches you how to look inside your own mind and then make better decisions for yourself. The best way to incorporate a new habit into your routine is to start small. And Noom is perfect for that. It only takes 10 minutes out of your day, but man, did those 10 minutes have a huge impact. When I'm intentional about what I'm eating and making sure I'm moving my body enough and in ways that I love, I have so much more energy. And honestly, my mind feels calmer. I'm more relaxed. So for me, using Noom is just a win all around. So sign up for your trial today at Noom.com 
com slash for the love. I'll spell that for you. It's n-o-o-m.com slash for the love to start your trial today. You're worth this investment in yourself. I promise. Noom.com slash for the love. I'll tell you what, after 2020, there's never been a better time to take stock of where you are and think about how you're carrying everything in your life. And if you have a feeling that the way you're carrying things doesn't quite feel right, you might find it helpful to talk to a professional counselor via BetterHelp. So with BetterHelp, you can connect with a licensed professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. BetterHelp's counselors are specialized in whatever you're struggling with. Stress, anxiety, depression, LGBTQ issues, family conflict, you name it. And listen, you're definitely not alone in this. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As one of my listeners, you'll get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash for the love. Join over a million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash for the love. All right, back to our show. I'm going to talk about your family a little bit. I think I told you Kimmel was on the show a few weeks ago and I like her so much. She's really smart and funny. Um, You really did okay on that. And she talked a little bit about what an important person your mom is, not just to you, but to your family right now. So I'd love to hear you talk about your mom a little bit. And I also like to kind of hear what your mom means to you now that you're in your 50s, as opposed to maybe in your teens and your 20s, because that's kind of a different iteration of mom yeah. um, for most of us. And just kind of add a little bit more color to her, because we see her in the, your life a lot. We see her in the sure. kind of background of your life, but I know she's integral. Yeah. Of the three of my, there's three, I have three, two brothers, two older brothers, and I'm the youngest. I was the mama's boy. All right. Dad was being successful in work. Uh, he was on the road a little bit more. He was still a very present father, but he was on the road a little bit more. And so mom raised me more than she raised the other two, more than and my dad raised the other two more than he raised me. So I was the mama's boy. I was, you know, she was my kindergarten teacher. She was the one that, you know, I've got stories about it in the book, you know, that told me I was little Mr. Texas for forever until I'll, just a couple of years ago, I found out that I was actually runner up and makes me <laughs> like, would I be sitting here right now with the life I have if I'd have grown up thinking I was runner up? <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's the one that talk about the queen of relativity. You know, she's the one that in a poetry contest in the seventh grade, she read my poem. I was like, that's okay, but check this one out. And I read it and it's just beautiful. And if all that I would want to do would be to sit and talk to you, would you listen? Ann Ashford. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. She goes, you like that one? I said, yeah, I do. She goes, you understand that one? I said, yeah, I do. She goes, then write that. I go, uh-huh. Well, and sign Anne's name. She goes, no, sign your name. I go, what Anne Asher wrote? She goes, but you just told me you understand it. It means something to you, so therefore it's yours. So I wrote that poem, Simon, and won the poetry contest. Oh, <laughs> so this, is, this is my mother, right? It's like, talk about oh, outlaw logic legendary. and existentialism of saying, hey, 
if you feel it's yours, it's yours. She's the one that taught us to, you know, you don't walk into a room like you want to buy it. You walk in there like you own it. You know, get in there, you know. Oh, yeah, you're griping about your shoes. So bad about those shoes. Well, I'm going to introduce you to the kid with no feet. You know, just heavy duties. No TV sure. watching, no reading. Why would you want to watch somebody doing something for you that you could be at doing yourself? So very active, engage in life, take action. You know, then we went through a time, uh, I remember after I got famous, we had, a, we had, that was the hardest time with our relationship because she became right. a fan of my fame at a time when I needed to talk to my mother about, mm. whoa, I'm trying to find some balance here. And I was not finding my mother on the other end of the phone line. I was finding a fan That's of interesting. my fame. So we got through that time once my career got stabilized enough and I got confident enough that my ship couldn't be sunk with her loose lips. And then I just let go of the reins and said, go for it. And you want to hit that red carpet in your short leather skirt and show them your, your legs and new pantyhose, do it to it. And it became fun for us again. Now she's 88. She's with yeah. us. Still very seldom goes to bed before me or wakes up after me. Yeah. Our favorite word is yes. You know, you see elders, not just our mothers, but you see elders. It's like in the 20s, we're revolutionaries, right? In the 30s, we start to see, take a little responsibility, see what mom and dad taught us were sort of, they were right about some things. The 40s, we customize, become responsible, start to build a family, what have you. 50s, we carry it on and come around the 60s, though. You see, I've noticed a consistency that elders start to become revolutionaries again. Hmm. They like have a complete lack of consideration for things that they talk Yeah, I can't wait. It's like their sense of humor's wild. They love being laughed at. They're like, you know, I always say this to my mom and my oldest brother, Rooster, this way. It's like, you know, if the Dalai Lama invited those two to a dinner for four for him and his brother's, you know, 75th anniversary, my brother and my mother would be convinced that that cake was for them. <laughs> They're just like, what? So I remember going to my mother. I was like, mom, I love it. you know, you, you tell fibs and you're so relative about certain things. I was like, do you ever have like any guilt or like feel like you could do better regrets about a day? She was like, oh, honey, every night when I go to bed, I make a mental list of all these things that I could have done better and that I want to improve on. She goes, but the thing is, when I wake up in the morning, I forgot them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she's a lover outlaw a lover you know? and it's it's amazing it's part of why she's thriving and so alive at, at 88 so you hear me talk about her i go on with these stories that she you know that's who she is and always has been there's a resilience and a sort of that's what we really got from her is that's a certain right. resilience dust yourself up and move on live by the golden rule doing others you i'm doing to you and let's go that's it i gotta complicate this thing let's go just do it. Oh, get over it. Oh, get over it. Come on. Let's go. We've lost a little bit of that. We really have. Her yep. generation embodies it yep. and really lives it out. I mean, here she is in her upper 80s. That's who she's. I do feel like we lost a little bit of that resiliency somewhere here in the middle. Yeah. All the bumpers are up and everybody's bubble wrapped. And yep. Insulated. Failure is the worst thing at all costs. Let's help our kids avoid it or pay their bill. I find myself incredibly drawn to women like your mom. And I was kind of raised like that too. I mean, mm -hmm. we just, we weren't like a part of the generation of like child centered parenting or whatever the heck. Right. Yeah. Uh, they were like, just shut the hell up and get outside. Is Why? Because I said that. Out? Well, I don't want to see you. Yeah. Bye. Yeah. We'll figure it out. You're bored. Work your way out of it. Figure it out. I'm not going to buy you. I'm not going to put something in front of you for your boredom. Yeah.
Yeah, yeah, and, exactly. And remember this one? Oh, don't forget. The reason you're here, look at it. Mom and dad, we made you, okay? <laughs> you make us. Remember that? <laughs> like, yeah. I do. And listen, it's true. They could give me something to cry about. And they did. And I learned we just we just don't whine to our parents. So sometimes I look at my kids and they're just so precious sometimes, just so incredibly precious. I'm like, come on, everybody. Let's just soldier up here. We got to, I need to put you guys out on the streets a little bit. Just give you some tough love. I yeah. love it. Those kind of parents. And that's how our grandparents are. They have no Fs to give anymore. Just like your mom. Uh, that I cannot wait to be that age. I'm going to be a legend. I just know it. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it seems so. I mean, maybe it's something that, you know, unconsciously they're like going, oh, okay, I'm in the fourth quarter of life. Sure. So, <laughs> what? What do I care? Let's rock. What, we're we're going to wait time of regret at this stage yeah. of the game? Yeah. You want me to not. consider it? <laughs> <laughs> consider what this. Tell the truth all the time? That's boring. <laughs> that is boring. All right. I'm with her. I'm completely with her. Okay, I'm going to ask you this. I watched you on Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. Well done. Like really, really well done. It was just an incredible discussion to listen to. And you said that you feel like in our world right now, I'm sorry, this is the hard left. We're just coming over here because it just matters right now. 2020 is so bonkers. We're coming up on the elections. Just everything's real critical right now, real crucial. You said you feel like in our world right now, values are deteriorating across the board. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to hear you talk a little bit more about that, if you would, and how you think or suggest or maybe envision that we course correct a little bit here. Yes. So we are in a time of great distrust. We don't trust others. Or lead. We don't trust our leadership. We don't know what the consensus is. We don't know if we can trust the science. Who's given us the science? We don't trust each other. So therefore, what happens? We start to not trust ourselves. And that back and forth is 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 that becomes bad medicine it also works with all of a sudden i don't trust myself i don't trust you so if i have no social contract with you and i have nothing that i can expect of you and nothing that we agree on that you can expect of me well, i don't really have a social contract for myself either yeah right or vice versa if i don't have a social if i'm letting myself off the hook for everything getting away with it whatever well anarchy you too i don't care so we need to rebind some social contracts some basic expectations of us that are bipartisan and non-denominational you know, in this time, in this election year, hope we get through this without a civil war. You know what I mean? What are some things that we can rely on, man? People want things, something to believe in. And I don't think it has to be a new rocket science of a, some sort of postmodern enlightenment awakening. I think it's actually just remembering something that's the most human about us that we can all agree on, which are our values, where we can have a conversation without a condemnation, where it doesn't matter. We're not going to get in a fight over who you voted for. We enjoy that discussion. I don't illegitimize you because you disagree with me. I don't make you persona non grata because you don't agree with me, which people do in all over the world right now. Sure. Not even disagree, just eliminate the person from even giving them a sense of that they exist. That's going the wrong way. I think our stepping stools out of this are through values. I think we need mm -hmm. to remind ourselves that they there's a responsibility to freedom and there's a freedom that comes with our responsibility. We can be more accountable, more responsible for ourselves and each other. We can have a better sense of humor at times instead of chastising somebody or momentarily putting ourselves on a pedestal because we put you down, mm -hmm. which we're full of that right now in society. We don't fill ourselves up. We actually, for a moment, and it's short money, it's very short money sure. thinking. And I think we need to get a longer view. We need to understand and ask ourselves that question. What do I value? Mm -hmm. And know that that answer is going to change along the way, but ask ourselves. And I don't know how to make a systemic change. 
And this is getting to what I think the steps, how we turn the page. I don't know how to make the systemic change, but I do believe that I can look in the mirror and tell myself, hey, make a pledge with myself, a voluntary obligation with myself. I'm going to do a little better. I can be a little bit better. I can have more of the understanding. I can be more accountable. I can be more responsible. I can take more of a risk in this area in my life. I can be more fair here. And if you do the same, that's how we create a collective. Enough people look in their own mirror and call themselves to the pledge. Then we're moving forward, starting to build those social contracts again. Oh, I have certain expectations that I didn't trust you. Someone asked me about how I, how I work with trust. And, and I never thought about it until the question was asked. But I'm like, you and I just met. You have 100% of my trust until you don't. That's not how most, most of us are working in the world right now. We're coming in with zero trust or very low trust and saying, you got to work your tail off over time to get me to trust you more. And I'm still skeptical. Man, that's a lot. There should be certain things that we can entrust in each other and understand and expect from each other, I believe, if we're going to move forward. Now, I'm a big fan of the word selfish. And people come at me all the time for this. But what I mean is, I'm not asking. There's not only value in being selfless and doing for others. We got to take care of ourselves. We really don't act unless it's personal. We really don't take action unless it's intruding. We don't get called to arms unless we really, we intellectually do, but we really don't take action until it's trespassing on our property, on ourselves or with our families. We talk a big talk about right and wrong and what's intellectually, morally right and wrong. But boy, until it's personal, we don't really take action. So I think it has to be personal. Now, there is a place that I call the honey hole (laughs) where the best decision for ourselves selfishly is also the best decision for the most amount of others. So, I like that. So where does the I, I like that. meet the we? Mm-hmm. Where's what we want meet what we actually need? That's good. Where's what we need actually meet what we want? Where, as I said earlier, do we get our freedom through responsibility? And where are we responsible for our freedom? Where those all overlap are the values that I'm talking about. So I think it comes down to personal choices, especially if we're going to do something about it before this new generation you're talking about comes through. Because that may be the end all answer, is that it's actually gonna take a complete generation change. And all we can do is put band-aids on things for a little while until that happens. I don't know. Hmm. But that's the call to arms that I think, the call to arms for a shared value system that we become more competent at our values that are our expectations of ourselves and each other's values. I think that's the solid, simple stepping stones with which we can collectively turn a page here. I couldn't agree more. Those to me feel like the building blocks of a collaborative, healthy culture where there is a balance of I and we, and they both matter, but they both count. So all these binary ways of thinking and responding to one another and reacting are so unproductive. I mean, even if they're, it, it is a short game, as you mentioned, it feels good in the, in the short run, but even if you're just a data person, it's unproductive. Where yeah. is it getting us? It's, it's not constructive. Not useful, it's not right? really building anything. It's paper tigers. That's it. Yeah, that's it. I got to feel hopeful. And I hope we don't just settle for band-aiding it until the next generation can grow up and take the reins and do better. They're still watching us. They're still paying attention to us. We're still creating precedents right now for how they will engage in civic discourse and what kind of leaders they're going to be in the next generation. So I'm one of these, I really start glass 
soulful, like you mentioned earlier, that's just my outlook on life. Yep. And so I'm with you on this. I'm optimistic that sort of individual responsibility can have a very big collective impact. Right. And that's what we're doing here. That's, that's why we have the conversations. Yeah. It doesn't have to be individualism and socialism. It has to be individual, but the individual can be a collective idea. And we just got to define that, make it accessible, make it digestible, feed it to people and ourselves in ways that make it go, oh, uh, that tastes good. That feels good. Oh, I see how being more fair in that situation was a selfish act because it paid me back. It built, it developed a green light in my life where I see how not lying, cheating, and stealing today was actually ultimately in the long money, a very selfish decision because now I don't have to go into life looking over my shoulders to see if anybody I lied, cheating, and stole from is there trying to get me. So I bought myself some more stress-free future. I mean, there's many ways to do it, all the way down to the damn, put your coffee in your coffee filter the night before you have coffee. So tomorrow morning when you get up tired, all you gotta do is push the damn button. You teed yourself up for a green light. You, you, you were kind to your future self. It's some simple things. And if we realize that there's a long-term gain, there's long-term ROI in making these choices for our own delayed gratification that will pay us back and just think long game, think yeah. the long game. That's how I think too, when I consider the we portion of this conversation, because sincerely like a, a rising tide lifts every boat in the harbor. So in virtually every case, what is good for my neighbor, when my neighbors are flourishing, when they are safe, right? when they are valued, when they are represented, it's good for everybody. Like right. that could be considered selfish to vote. It, in is, my selfish. it is selfish. That's exactly my, my, my point. It is. And again, back to this short-term missing link we have here in the ideology of thinking, oh, if I can get you to lose, that means I'll win. Uh-huh, right. No, 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 no. That doesn't mean you win. There's, we don't, we're not all running the same race. And that's why there's room for blue ribbons and to win in all the races. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're doing the same thing. Doesn't, I mean, I look at our individual's lives and say America as an aspiration. We're all chasing yet. We're not going to get there. We're not going to find perfect equality in America. That's not the point. The point is we keep chasing down that definition. If you're a believer in God, why do you, why should you love science? Because it's the pursuit of defining God. They're not exclusive. Where do we chase our better selves? Where can we say, put our transcendent self up to who we want to be up there? Write the headline first. Let's head to that headline. Knowing we may never get there. You know what I mean? That's why I write in the book about, think about what your eulogy is. And then deconstruct backwards and go, oh, well, I'm actually writing it right now (laughs) by my actions, by every comment I leave online, which remember everybody out there who leaves those, they will outlive you forever. They will introduce you when you are gone. (laughs) So think about it. So it's an aspiration. I think I've found that in my life, I'm happier when I'm and I've learned that I don't ever get there. I don't ever land and go, ta-da, I did it. No. And every time I do that, I step in real soon after that. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? So, But if you go the process, the pursuit is it. That's it. That's the game. I love that. So the holidays might look just a tad different this year, but one thing that hasn't changed is how joyful it is to give especially to the littles. And listen, if you have a kid on your list and you want to give them something fun and creative, you have to check out KiwiCo. 
KiwiCo delivers hands-on science and art projects for kids of all ages. Inside every box is everything you need to spark curiosity and creative thinking, which makes KiwiCo the perfect gift. With KiwiCo, kids can engineer a walking robot, design a paint pendulum, create bubbling chemistry experiments, and more, all from the comfort of home, of course. And here's a little secret. KiwiCo isn't just for littles. If you have a crafter in your life, you should check out the Maker Crate, which is perfect for everyone ages 14 to 104. You could de-stress by making something beautiful and functional like a punch needle pillow of a beautiful sunset or these little terrazzo clay organizers you could use to store everything from Q-tips to paper clips. It's like craft time for grown-ups, and it is so much fun. KiwiCo is redefining learning with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. So right now you can get 50% off your first month plus free shipping on any crate line with the code for the love at kiwico.com. So that's 50% off your first month at kiwico.com promo code for the love. This holiday season, more people will be mailing their stuff than literally ever before. That means the post office is going to be super busy, and I don't have time for that. Lucky for us, Stamps.com brings the post office, and now UPS shipping, right to your computer. It's so easy. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for literally any letter, any package, any class of mail for anywhere you want to send. This is like all my dreams come true. Once your mail is ready, all you do is schedule a pickup or drop off. It really is that simple. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. It's a great deal. Whether you're looking to send gifts to loved ones or you're a small business looking to ship to customers. Guys, just don't spend a minute of your holiday season at the post office this year. Not one minute. Sign up for stamps.com instead. There's no risk. With my promo code for the love, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments, no contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in for the love. Okay, so it's stamps.com and then enter for the love. All right, back to our show. I want to ask you one more question and then land the plane. I'd love for you just to talk for one minute about your and Camilla's nonprofit, Just Keep Living. She and I just barely got to talk on it. And I promised her we are going to re, we'll put this back in the show. Yeah. So people, and now here you are. So yay, you're now, you're the ambassador today. And so I just, I'd love to hear you talk about what that means to you and how this is also a big part of your legacy. Yeah. So Camilla and I started an after school curriculum in Title I schools, which are lower income areas. Most of the kids are on the meal plan at school, 50% dropout rates. We created a class after school. We would give the kids and young men and women a safe place to go. They set a physical fitness goal. Maybe I want to 
make the soccer team next year, but I have trouble jogging a quarter of a mile right now. So that's not going to work. So we're going to help you get in shape so you can make the soccer team. Or I need to lose three pounds to fit in the prom dress. All right, we'll help you lose those three pounds to fit in the prom dress. Nutritional goals. All right, mom spent 40 bucks on burgers and fries last night for dinner, and that's what she's been going out and buying each night. We're going to take that same amount of money and take it to the supermarket with mm -hmm. mom. We're going to shop. We're going to get some veggies. We're going to get some beans, maybe some rice, maybe a little meat. Spend the same amount of money. Come home, have a healthier meal that you get to cook together in the kitchen, which is good for the family unit. Third, accountability. They have to do community service within their community. And this gives them ownership of the curriculum. It makes them feel like, oh, it ain't no free deal. You're putting me on the line. I got to be accountable. I like that. That gave them ownership. You know, people like responsibility. They have something um, to give. They're valuable. Yeah. yeah. And then fourth is the this halo of gratitude over the uh, curriculum, meaning at the end of every class, the kids sit around in a circle, share something aloud with each other that they are thankful for in them in their lives. We believe that the more you're thankful for in your life, the more you will create in your life to be thankful for. The best thing I hear from the kids on this is that they come forward and they go. My favorite thing about the gratitude circles, I'm hearing my peers say thank you for things in their lives that I have in my life that I've never paused to be thankful for. I like uh, it. For granted. So we think there's a reciprocity to gratitude and that's what our program's doing. It's a very selfish thing. It makes me genuinely feel good to hear a student go, thank you for that. Oh. You know what? I was thankful today that my grandmother got out of the hospital and she's back home safe. And, and, and being able to share that with my friends where maybe two years ago that wouldn't have been cool or I would have been too shy to do, I'm able to do that. And then they shared a story with me and let me in. And we're helping each other. I'm sitting there filling up. That's a selfishly feels good to me. That self, however selfless it is or considered to be what we may be, we may be doing, it does feed us too, selfishly. Good job. Well done, Matthew. That is such a fantastic organization. I'll make sure I link to that for all my folks to pay attention to. Okay, wrapping it up. These are just like quick, like off the top, yeah. asking everybody in the series. Here's the first one. This is a year of a lot of loss. 2020 has been hard. Yep. On so for you, what would be one thing maybe that you would say was a small win in your life this year? Sure. Seeing, seeing my kids spend more time on their creative hobbies that they would not have spent so much time on had they been engaged back in school. Okay. And I believe that they will get out of this with the confidence in those things that although maybe the majority of their friends may not want to do them, I believe they'll have the confidence and I hope they'll have the confidence to continue to do those things, even though maybe everyone's not doing them. Your kids are little or mine are older than yours. We also hit some creative license during COVID and they gave each other piercings and they shaved each other's heads, boys and girls. And it was just a real mess up in here for a while. But I'm like, you know what? <laughs> Whatever gets us through the day right, right? now, creative license. Okay. Here's the last question. I actually ask everybody this and I want you to answer however you want. This can okay. give me a serious answer. You can give me an absurd sure. answer. Okay. It's from a priest who I love. And this is a question that she asks, what is saving your life right now? What is saving my life right now? What a great question. Mm -hmm. What's saving my life right now is not trying to save it. What's saving my life right now is living it. I'm not a hoarder. I've never been a real, I don't feel like I'm alive and I don't feel like I'll, you know, it, I'm not a, let's hang on to it. Make sure we say, Dan Butner, Blue Zones. You ever heard of this man? Great man. He went around the world to find people that lived the longest and the happiest. And those people, those centenarian stuff, yeah. 
the reason they've lived so long and they've been so happy is not because they tried to live longer. They just forgot to die. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't about working to go, I got to just try and save. I got to hang on. I got to make sure I'm eating it. No, it's how they, they just forgot to die. Forget about death. Move on, carry on. Don't be, think about the much less stress you have about that and all, the, all kinds of other things. I love it. It's not saving your life. It's living your life. That's literally the most Matthew thing that has ever been said. On that note, thank you for being on the show. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for your book. I'm excited for everybody to read it. And we learn a little bit more about you than we knew, than you've shared before. And you kind of put it all out there. And so bravo to you for being that transparent with that many people. Okay. We're like, keep rocking. You're on it. I can tell you're on it. On it. Thanks, Matthew. All right. Bye bye. Okay. I hope you loved that as much as I did. (laughs) I know that you didn't because you weren't talking to him. That was fun. I was telling my friends, when I was getting ready for this interview, that my suspicion was going to be that Matthew was just as easy and normal and natural to talk to as you would think. And I was right. Just felt like talking to a friend. We are going to link to all his stuff, link to his new book, Green Lights. So if you go to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, we'll have this entire episode there for you. Everything that we mentioned, all the links, all the assets, all the stuff. So that's one stop shop for you to get to hear from Matthew McConaughey, who said that he comes from a tough love, Texas home of rule breakers. And if that doesn't sum it up in the most charming way, I don't know what does. Guys, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you've downloaded all the episodes that you have. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for rating and reviewing our show. It matters. It means so much to us as a team. And we are just delighted to work hard for you. We really are. And we continue to want to bring you the best guests and the greatest conversations, the most interesting topics, the most relevant discussions. That is our North Star. So just know that's what we think about all the time. And so thank you for being such a generous podcast community, for sharing so many episodes and being here week in and week out. We love to serve you. So on behalf of Laura and her crew and Amanda and I, see you next week.